Welcome to Lit Poetry, the podcast where we go on a journey of discovery, reading, analyzing, and discussing great poetry from around the world. Poetry is worth it because the reading and writing of poetry is a revolutionary act that has the potential to transform both the reader and our world. Welcome to the Lit Poetry Podcast Season 2. In today's episode, we'll be listening to a very special collection of poems grouped together under the title Five Stroke Poems. This working title is actually an artificial construct that the author behind these poems, Aidan Coleman, has used to link together a number of his poems from his poetry collection, Asymmetry, a book of poetry made up of a series of very short lyric poems. In this book, many of the poems explore the poet's own experience of having suffered a stroke, being hospitalised, and taking the long and difficult road to recovery. Asymmetry, published by Brandel and Schlesinger, was shortlisted in 2012 for both the Western Australian Premier's Book Award and the Adelaide Festival Awards for Literature. Aidan Coleman's first collection of poetry, Avenues and Runways, was shortlisted for the New South Wales Premier's Kenneth Slessor Award in 2006. Mount Sumptuous, his third book of poems, was published in 2020 by Wakefield Press. Aidan is an early career researcher at the University of Adelaide's J.M. Cootsie Centre for Creative Practice. He reviews regularly for various publications and is working on a biography of John Forbes. We're very lucky to have Aidan on the podcast today to discuss the poem we're featuring. But before I introduce you to him, we better start by listening to the poem itself. I introduce you to Five Stroke Poems by Aidan Coleman. Five Stroke Poems by Aidan Coleman. One. The question. Awaking to important faces, dazed, factual. The smile I test tastes weak and strange. From somewhere a question. I speak an empty comic bubble. I try again and now again. Nothing but air and the hum of the room. The click and dull bounce of machines. What happened? Here's what I remember. Light and the heavy bell of the ceiling. The reach of odours. The head pain eclipsing every other detail. So that slow voices had to fight to get in. And then the dark room riding away. Your hand and anchor a tangible reason. Then burnt breath. Then nothing. 3. Shower There's something terrifying, though it's not the chair or the thought of water. It's that I've been manhandled here on a morning like too many late nights. My bad arm pinned close in a makeshift sling. They boss the other with soap and flannel. The nurse is stern, abrupt, cruel, she admits to be kind because so many don't make it back. Instead of her, Leanna drives me with two towels 
scruffily, like a wet dog. I savour this more private attention, bask in her tender rough touch. Four, night. The sounds of evening peel away, leave only this carnivorous hum. It's not my heart, but my brain that's beating. I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. There's nothing now between you and me. It's simple as a diagram. A helicopter swings its light like someone bringing up a bucket. I ransack the drawers of my mind for comforts. I know somehow the rules have changed. For someone, death is this. Five, static. With my left hand, I pick up the paper. Bully it flat. I begin to read familiar words. They come off the page at different speeds. I catch, fumble, drop. As they enter, the head's static. They switch, dissolve. I begin again. Slower. More concentratedly. So welcome back to the Lit Poetry Podcast, and welcome, Aiden. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great, Aiden. It's um, a spectacular poem. It's very beautiful. I should start by saying that when I put this poem together, I played it to a friend of mine who's a sound engineer, and I had him in tears, actually, by the end of it. He, he felt very, very moved by it. And I think that's um, a measure of what a powerful poem is. I know it's cobbled together from a collection and it kind of doesn't exist in itself as a poem, but I think what we've managed to put together here really does sit comfortably as a, as a beautiful poem in its own right. Yeah, so what did you think when I uh, sent you the finished product of poem? I, I really love it. Um, I, th- I think it works really well. Um, there, there's a couple of lines where your interpretation of, of the line is, is different from mine uh, with how it's performed, but um, I really like that and it, it should be there to interpret various ways as well. Yeah. So uh, what, could you draw my attention to what lines, those particular lines might have been? One line that really stood out was, uh, here's what I remember, because um, uh, for me that, that's a very, it, it's delivered in a sort of flat, dull <laughs> sort of way, oh, yeah. uh, and it's like a list of, of things that I remember, um, the, the sort of vagueness of the moment. And, yeah, um, yeah, so I sort of added a lot of pathos to that. Um, yeah. Yeah, rather than sort of that. Yeah, I think your reading would be probably a lot better, actually, because I think that would capture that mood. So, yeah, if I had my time again, I'd probably go back and change that. That's, that's interesting. No, it's good, though. It, it can be interpreted that way as well. I, I don't mind that at all. Yeah, I suppose retrospectively, um, if you're writing the poem, you could read those emotions back into it, um, even though they weren't probably... They don't capture the experience, perhaps, yeah. in, the, in yeah. that moment. Yeah. Were there any other lines in, in particular that... Um, not that I remember, but it, it's interesting because I, I might um, read some lines differently on, on different days. Uh, uh, and you, you go back and find things um, in a poem after you've written it years later that yep. 
become more uh, foregrounded, I suppose. You know, um, mm. they become uh, maybe slightly different to your meaning um, when you wrote them at the time. Yeah, that's right. And look, I'm prone to reading things emotionally, so I, I think I, I bring that to um, recitals uh, in particular. Yeah. yeah, It's very interesting, though, though I know that um, in my own past, um, I've had you know, read poems which I haven't connected with and really struggled, and then sometimes you meet somebody who will read the poem, and you'll, you'll hear a reading of it and go, oh, my God, yeah. that poem is now alive to me. Um, so, yeah, it's that, that world of interpretations is very interesting, Yeah, how, how it works. It might be really good just to hear a little bit about yourself for our listeners, um, a bit about your background, poetry that you write, um, how you entered into uh, um, becoming a poet uh, and, pra- and practicing this art form. Um, yeah, just a little bit about yourself. Yeah. Well, my mum was a, a librarian and my dad a mathematician, so I definitely followed in her footsteps in, in mm. loving books and, and poetry. Um, so... I'd always loved poetry from a really early age, but then I had a brilliant English teacher in year 12, as many of us do, um, who got me into the Romantics and T.S. Eliot. Um, But then at uni, you know, I wrote a lot of bad poetry, sort of faux Eliot uh, um, things that, you know, were about things I wasn't really feeling at the time. Mm. Um, but then I discovered um, Australian poetry. Unfortunately, not through my BA I was doing at uni, but through my private reading. And mm. that really allowed me to connect what I was writing to what was going on in my world. Um, mm. <laughs> very much a poetry of the everyday I was drawn to initially. Yeah, so yeah. going from Eliot, who was about a different context and big ideas, and then, yeah. but then moving it back to the everyday um, yeah yeah that, that makes a lot of lot of sense and it's interesting with the um, trajectory of a of a person entering into poetry to find your voice is a very difficult thing uh, you know and and I suppose you have to start where your maturity level is and where you know what yeah. the entry point is yeah that's, that's your experience there yeah so um, I, I went on to become an English teacher and I always tried mm. to connect my students we would study Eliot and romantics and those mm. sorts of poets mm. as well but I really tried to connect them with even local South Australian writers and I found they write much better poetry actually connecting Mm. to, you know, the landscapes they're seeing around them or events that are at a more micro level and on a less grand stage, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. So do you think the grand stage stuff is for... Is for later life, or you know, for for a young audience, like is it better? So you're saying it's probably better to ground their exposure to poetry more in the, the here and now. Um, I, I think they need both, but I think eventually you're going to get to those grander themes through um, <clears throat> that concentration on uh, at the level of the sentence at, at first, and on the level of everyday stuff that's going on in your life. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think you're right. I'm a teacher as well, um, still teaching. Um, yeah, and so yeah, it's always a challenge to to um, attract kids um, to poetry, in particular. I think.
Aiden, a little bit about when we're thinking about the poem in particular, I think it um, touches upon some very um, vulnerable um, subject matter. So it you know, clearly goes into that sort of um, place of your, your stroke and your recovery. Um, it raises a lot of questions. I think it's a very valuable poem because it particularly gives the reader an insight into a, in an experience that you know, most people do not have, they don't understand. Can you talk us to us a little bit about the process of? I know it's not a a poem, so it's cobbled together from asymmetry, which is a collection of small lyric poems. But maybe you could talk about asymmetry in, in general too. Um, but what what was the process, and and what were your what was the emotional journey for you like? What were your thought processes? Just I don't know. Just tell us the story of the, um, this poem that we've listened to. Well. At first, when I had the stroke, I, I thought I'd lost the ability to write at all. Um, uh, metaphor is very much a driver for poetry. It's a driver for my poetry. Um, and I thought I'd lost the ability to create metaphors. And it was interesting um, when writer friends visited me in hospital when I could barely speak and I thought, um, are we friends anymore? I've lost this connection because mm. we used to talk about literature and ideas mm. and I got very depressed that maybe I, I couldn't write anymore. Mm. Then I went to a poet's wedding, um, Peter Goldsworthy's wedding. It was on Good Friday, um, which is very Goldsworthy. Yeah. And I was at a table of writers, and that, that was the sort of nadar of my depression about this, this sort of thing. And this was um, eight or nine months after uh, the stroke, and I still hadn't written anything. And I went home from that wedding, and I wrote the last poem in Asymmetry, which isn't about the stroke at all. It's about New York and this moment in, in the city of New York when I was leaving an art gallery with Liana, my wife, and it, it started to snow. And it was this beautiful moment that I tried writing about before I had the stroke, and it didn't come. But there, straight away, it just came out in one sitting, basically, almost as it appears in the book. Mm. And that sort of unlocked something. And I started to write love poems to Liana, which is... The book is called Asymmetry because of the, the effects of the stroke, but also it's in two parts, and the shorter section at the end um, consists so of... So I'm, I'm making a connection here. So in the, the middle poem, Liana is the, the nurse that... Or is that a different name? That's a different... Uh, well, um, she wasn't a nurse, but she was uh, oh, okay. there... Um, yeah, okay. Yeah. Through those... And so she's nursing you. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So the nurse is before, and then she comes in and she dries you, and there's that yeah, tender which is rough nice touch. because yeah, Liana's nice, beautiful. Yeah, a presence in those poems, but mm. then it and ends. her hand as well as a presence earlier on, yeah, pulling you back from the, the darkness. Yeah, and I suppose mm. you know, love is the note you want to end on without being too sentimental about it. Yeah. But um, I wasn't in a position at sort of eight or nine months to revisit the stroke because it was too emotionally raw. 
and I was really struggling with going under with depression and the old life I seemed to have lost at that yes. stage and I was doing a lot of rehab and a lot I had a still a lot of deficits I have some deficits now but not nearly so many as I had then so it was a fairly major stroke then yeah at first I, I couldn't uh, talk or uh, walk or uh, move my right arm at all um, most of those things started coming back after a month but my mm. my speech is it's slower than it was um, pre-stroke now 14 years on but it was very very slow very halting I used to go into shops to ask for something and the the shopkeepers would talk very slowly to me and very deliberately like I'd yeah. been hit on the head um, wow. and and mm. needed that um, mm. which is frustrating because Cognitively, you, you pick up all those things, but you can't sort of make your tongue and mouth do the things they need to do. And so much cognitive load sort of um, goes to creating in those things. So do you have sort of um, disconnects or pauses in your head sometimes that where things don't sort of come out um, still? Not, not so much that, but I have to work hard on what I'm saying Mm. Um, sometimes when I type something, I'll confuse pronouns, participles, stuff like that, mm. because of the, I don't know, the mental effort that, that those things take. But I, I can still write well if I can draft something. So at the sort of eight, nine month mark, I was ready to write love poems, but I wasn't ready to write stroke poems. Yeah. Um, Billy Wilder said, you know, when you're, you're, you're down, you should write a... You know, the film director, Billy Wilder, said, mm. when you're down, you should write a, um, uh, a comedy, and when you're happy, that's the time for tragedy. So I needed mm. to get in a happier place before I could revisit the stroke poems. You know, Wordsworth says, you know, that the poetry is emotion recollected in tranquility, and you do need that stable mm. place to write of those horrible things i suppose yeah. and then i started to write the stroke poems after about a year maybe 18 months um and some of them were in the present my rehab activities some of them were, were looking back and some of them were looking back to the the initial moment i probably took down some lines before that mm. Mm. um but it felt like the form found me so mm. it's a sort of fragmented narrative they had mm. to be very visceral um, very much imagistic um, and impressions of um, this journey through hospital yeah that that's how it feels that you get these sort of fleeting um, sort of impressions that sort of um, yeah come across your mind and but I think the poem is actually really valuable and, and I imagine that people who have suffered from a stroke who would read this would I think get a lot of comfort um, and probably a sense of solidarity um, yeah out of it and I'm not sure have you have you spoken to people or have you, is this something you've given to people who have actually had a stroke or uh, yeah I have um, I it, it's interesting because other poets have had strokes and um, people have said to me I'll, I'll give them the, the, the copy for uh, of the book as a gift and I've said well, maybe let them write their own stroke poems and then they can read it later on. So I knew yes. Seamus Heaney had a stroke poem, but I didn't want to read it um, until I'd 
written my own. Vincent Buckley have, has some very good stroke poems that I read pre-stroke. But it's interesting, Joel Dean, uh, a Melbourne poet yeah. who I admire, um, he had a stroke um, more recently than mine. And his stroke poems are very different to mine. So mm. that was really good reading another angle. Because yeah, for and me... And you read him after. Yes, your, yeah. yeah. And he, his stroke was later than mine. But for me, this form insisted, um, you know, it, it couldn't be written in any other form. No, but I think that... I mean, I really appreciate that about poetry in general, when form lines up with the, with the, with the sense of the poem itself. Yeah. yeah and you see that in T.S. Eliot work. For instance, when you have sort of fragments, like in, um, say, um, The Hollow Men, fragments of um, impressions. Um, yeah. And because it's representing a society that's disintegrating largely, you yeah. know, and so the form matches the, the content. So, uh, yeah, I really love that aspect of it. Yeah. But again, I think that sense of solidarity and comfort that people would get from understanding that they're not alone in this experience is, is really... It's a substantial thing. Um, yeah. And I, th I think I'd just like to add to that, that there's this impression that we can talk about strokes as this one thing. And that mm. I found very frustrating. Even some nurses would say, because I made a very good recovery and was making mm. progress, but there were some other people around me who weren't. And sometimes people get frustrated with that. But they might have had a different stroke. It's almost like saying... You can have a minor stroke that you recover from after a week or two, but you can have a stroke that you, you can't talk forever, mm. <laughs> maybe. And, and it's like car crashes, I'd like to compare it to, really. Yeah. You know, you wouldn't say, you know, if someone's in an intensive care after a car crash, oh, my friend had a car crash and he's fine now. <laughs> yeah, no, you no, know, no, no. So yeah. strokes yeah. are sort of like that. Um, oh, yeah, and I think, they're, and they're terrifying too. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I know stories of, you know, that it depends where the stroke hits you as well, but it can actually change you know, aspects of your personality if it yeah. hits you in, in places that, you know, you can become suddenly like from a very gentle person to an angry person, you know, it can elicit that sort of response. And that, to me, the, the fear of actually losing, becoming a different person to others, that yeah. would be, apart from, mental faculties that would be the other fear well my yeah. my stroke was caused by a brain tumor that's uh, growing out of my brain stem um, and they couldn't get all of it it's it's a reasonably benign tumor but after that operation the double blow of that I, I did change in personality which was terrifying mm. for my wife oh, wow. um, and I sort of got my old personality back but yeah. it, it took a, a number of months and it may have been the medication, the steroids that you, you yeah. have after a brain surgery. Um, but yeah. Um, so I imagine that the, the nature of your love with your wife built through these particular events is fairly profound. Would I be right in saying that? Yeah. I mean, um, she was there every step of the way and, um, we're still together. <laughs> um, yeah. She endured a lot through that. Yeah. Yeah. What's well, it's, it's an amazing thing. Yeah. It was. It's interesting as well that you you talked about how you'd lost a sense of, um, or you were scared of losing a sense of uh, metaphor. Mm. Um, but you know, it's interesting. I was going through the poem and looking at different aspects, and there's there's a lot of metaphor in yeah. here. Um, you know. You describe her hand as being an anchor. Um, 
And I love the line, in particular, where your ram ran. Uh, where is it? I ransacked the drawers of my mind for comforts, which is just this amazing sort of. I get this vision of this person sort of bewildered and lost, sort of mm. opening drawers frantically trying to find information, but it, it's you know it's not there. Yeah, I I did get this sense of I was thinking in a new way, and the thinking was so effortful. I was more aware of those processes that um, mm. trying to get back to basics and think through things. It, it's the um, the final poem about reading the advertiser. That was a, the real shock when I was reading words I didn't expect to to mm. read in this way, and it was all scrambled in my head. There was there was this kind of static, I suppose. And a, originally, when I I couldn't speak, I thought. Eventually, I don't know how I got someone to do this, but um, I wanted a dictionary so I could point to words, but mm. I found out I couldn't really do that. I, I lacked initially the, the cognitive function to do that. Yeah, I can't imagine what that experience is like. It, it draws my attention to that last um, poem in the sequence where you, you know, the word that really sticks out to me is uh, when you, the word bully. When you've got the paper and you and you bully it flat, yeah, um, and the sense of frustration captured in that little little word because we all, yeah, you know, we don't. It's not a word that we use a lot, um, yeah. So when you do use it in writing, it really sort of sort of punches above its weight, I think. Yeah, um, it leaves a very deep impression. You mentioned before in your entry into poetry and your love of poetry that you were attracted to the romantics, um, or that was some of your early exposure. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about uh, the romantics and um, your, your connection? Well, I, obviously it's great poetry, and I think we still, in so many ways, our world is shaped by the romantics and definitely how we think about poetry and it's it's something I've reflected on more recently in changing style from my third collection I, I, I wanted to do something else and how many of the assumptions about what a poem is about what it can do about the role of feelings in poetry um, is built into the way we write the way we we mm. read poetry um, and I still read the romantics a lot, mm. especially um, Keats. I didn't like Wordsworth much when I went through mm. high school, but um, I've, I've come to appreciate him uh, far more lately. Mm. Yeah, it's fascinating because, um, you know, the romantics, you could say in some ways, they're an anecdote, partially an anecdote. Into it. I mean, we live in a world that's very rational. Now, yeah, that stresses rationality, and and the romantics sort of speak of you know putting on a pedestal something else that is in our human condition. Um, yeah, yeah, that can't be so easily defined, and perhaps that's something that we need to bring draw back into our yeah. lives. Perhaps. Um, yeah, it was a very much a reaction to the world, of, you know, the rise of science, and yeah. now we have the this technological world that you know. Uh, Things like social media are shaping how we think and who we are. Mm. 
um, yeah, I, I think a healthy dose of romanticism would be good for us at this moment in time. But I also think I, I teach at Adelaide Uni a, a course in eco-poetics and of course current theorists are very down on the romantics and a, a lot mm. of, of stuff they stand for and do. But I think really their, their mode of thought and their rigor that, that's often missed um, is mm. misinterpreted sometimes and sentimentality. Um, yeah, I think it's the sentimentality that people yeah, react yeah. to. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's still great stuff. And, it is, um, yeah. But still, it, it always is a danger, isn't it? That Yeah, too much sentimentality, I should say. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm. Oh, that's yeah. fascinating. So what about things in the poem? So I, I noticed also... Um, a lot of consonants and assonants and the use of, you know, wordplay in, in that way. So when you write a poem like this, um, can you t- talk us through a little bit about the process? This might be interesting to, to the budding poets out there. Do you just bang stuff down on the page and then rework it? Or is, it, is a poem sort of done as it comes out? Or is it more a painstaking grasp, grasp line for line for what you're looking for? Or... Or something in between. Often I start with a, a line that I find compelling, a phrase that that must be musical as well as be mm. maybe a good image. Um, and I would tend to build a poem around that. Really, in a in a book of such short lyrics, most of them came out 80% how they were in the first sitting, and then I'll mm. really look at the line breaks. Um, really look at every individual word. Probably something that I've really changed between writing this book, my third book, is now I care a lot more about titles. Um, Those titles in that book tend to be descriptive. And if I wrote that book again, it's 10 years on from a lot of the um, poems in the book, or more even, I'd, I'd pay more close attention to titles and maybe some of the titles would be ironic or you know Mm. glance off the poem in an interesting way more interesting than they in fact do but maybe there's an opportunity isn't there in in, in a a title that maybe poets probably could pay more attention to because it because it's separate from the poem in some ways yeah there's a separation where you can you can do an ironic thing or you can make a statement or you can yeah add inject something yeah i mean the the title itself could add a whole metaphorical another layer to the poem mm-hmm. um, but in some ways it, it's written in a moment in time as all poems are and the, the book's straightforwardness, its directness is, is a feature of it so I, I might make it a lesser collection of poems by actually working on that too much I think with, mm-hmm. with new theories and new uh, ways I think a poem should work now, but I hope I'm not, you know, stuck in my views here in 2021. I, I hope in 10 years' time I have different views about poetry and mm. different elements come in and out, and I value different things more in, in 10 years. I hope I'm not static in that way. Yeah. So there's a constant striving for growth and change. Yeah. In yeah. yeah, and I think most poets will attest to that. Yeah. But that is... I mean, it's a sort of daggy reference, but I like it. Um, R.E.M., who I grew up with, the band, mm. 
had a period through out of time, green, um, green before out of time, and then automatic for the people and monster, where you 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 would say all those albums are definitely REM, but they create mm. a different sound for each album, and you mm. couldn't move many of the tracks around from album to album, oh, yeah. and I like that idea that poets write books like that that you'd recognize the poet but you recognize the poet doing a very different thing yeah that's right um, it's probably an unrealistic a- aspiration but uh sure yeah and things are gained and things are lost in that process yeah. I, I imagine um yeah it's, it's that's good um so can you tell us a little bit aiden about what you're working on now or um, I know your life is very busy. Um, you've got uh, trying to find a house and a bunch of other stuff that's probably distracting you from uh, yep. writing pursuits a little bit. But what sort of plans do you have um, in, in the near future? What can we expect from you? Well, I'm working on this biography of the poet John Forbes at the moment. And I love literary history, Australian literary history. Mm-hmm. It's been great immersing myself in the, especially the 70s and 80s in Australian poetry. So I'm working on that. I've, I've got an Oz Council grant to complete the book. Um, and I'm writing poetry at the same time. I'm sort of working very slowly on two projects. One is a collection of poems more in the vein of Mount Sumptuous. Um, and it's more of a narrative element as well for some of the new work. So. I'd be working on that for a few years to come, I think. Mm. And then I'm working on a um, a book that's come under a number of different titles. I like Decade as an idea about my first 10 years of memory. And mm. I'm yet to work out is if it's poetry and prose. I've been doing, you know, a few mm. prose pieces. Um, and it, it might intersperse those things. It might write about the same experience in po- poetry and prose. Yeah. And so it sounds like you're, you're um, we spoke before the podcast, but it sounds like you're almost moving into sort of the, the, the verse novel sort of narrative area. I, yeah, I, I like verse novels and I'd like that idea as well. Um, yeah. Well, it's been fascinating. I, I do um, really relate to what you're saying about you know, learning about poetry and Australian poetry. I know during this podcast, I've been meeting lots of different poets, and it's um, it's a really enriching experience uh, and a, and a real fantastic way to celebrate. Um, and I hope you get a sense of celebration of your own work um, through yeah. joining us here on the Lit Poetry Podcast and joining the family. Um, yeah, it's yeah, an honour, and I, I love what you've done with the uh, the poem. Or the, oh, the poems, it, yeah. It's an indulgence, really. I, I'm a bit spoiled. I love doing it. So, <laughs> yeah, no, it's great. Um, Aiden, it might wrap up there. Um, it's been terrific, absolutely terrific, uh, talking to you today. Um, I love this poem. I love how it's come out. Um, and I really look forward to um, getting my hands on some of your work. I, I need to read more of your work. So um, I'll be doing that shortly, ordering some of your books. And I really wish you all the best for future pursuits thanks a lot no worries so it's time for us to sign off for another week 
In our next episode, we'll be looking at Wilfred Owen's famous poem, Dulcayette Decorum Esque. So make sure you tune in to what should be a great discussion. Of course, if you're looking for other poetry resources, you can visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. We'd also like to encourage you to support our work by subscribing to the podcast or to our YouTube channel. I hope you enjoyed today's discussion with Aidan Coleman. Until next week, I'll see you later. Five Stroke Poems by Aidan Coleman One, The Question Awaking to important faces, dazed, factual, the smile I test tastes weak and strange. From somewhere a question, I speak an empty comic bubble, I try again and now again, nothing but air and the hum of the room, the click and dull bounce of machines. Two. What happened? Here's what I remember. Light and the heavy bell of the ceiling. The reach of odours. The head pain eclipsing every other detail. So that slow voices had to fight to get in. And then, the dark room riding away. Your hand and anchor, a tangible reason. Then burnt breath. Then nothing. 3. Shower There's something terrifying, though it's not the chair or the thought of water. It's that I've been manhandled here on a morning like too many late nights. My bad arm pinned close in a makeshift sling. They boss the other with soap and flannel. The nurse is stern, abrupt, cruel, she admits to be kind because so many don't make it back. Instead of her, Leanna drives me with two towels, scruffily, like a wet dog. I savour this more private attention, bask in her tender rough touch. Four, night. The sounds of evening peel away Leave only this carnivorous hum. It's not my heart, but my brain that's beating. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. There's nothing now between you and me. It's simple as a diagram. A helicopter swings its light like someone bringing up a bucket. I ransack the drawers of my mind for comforts. I know somehow the rules have changed. For someone, death is this. Five, static. With my left hand, I pick up the paper. Bully it flat. I begin to read familiar words. They come off the page at different speeds. I catch, fumble, drop. As they enter, the head's static. They switch, dissolve. I begin again. Slower more concentratedly. You've been listening to the Lit Poetry Podcast, presented by James Laidler. For more podcasts, 
poetry videos, and other useful resources, visit our website at www.litpoetry.com. Thanks for listening.